Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Well, uh, Notre Dame certainly made its season opener interesting. The Irish escaped Tallahassee with a 41-38 overtime victory at Florida State. The first game may have given us a better picture of what this Notre Dame team will look like this season, but it also may have been misleading. That's sort of the beauty of season openers. One area of concern Sunday night was certainly Notre Dame's offensive line play. Jack Cohn was sacked four times and the Irish averaged just 1.9 yards per rush for a total of 65 yards. We wanted to spend some time examining the offensive line today, so we asked former Notre Dame offensive lineman Bob Morton to grace us with his presence once again. Bob, thanks for joining us. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. I love that you guys uh, make sure that I get to keep filing that has-been status card every year by coming (laughs) out and talking one or two games with you. That's right. We are we have the never been status. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll take any has been connections we can get. Um, Bob, th- this doesn't have to be offensive line related necessarily, but I'm curious, what was your biggest takeaway from from Sunday night's game? You know, I'm going to stay positive. And, and I think sometimes I can be overly skeptical, um, even when our team's doing well. But uh, after that third quarter, we're up 18 going into the fourth quarter. I mean, we were close from being able to run away with that with that game. And, and there were a lot of things that were going against us. Um, there were a lot of things that we had kind of uh, dropped the ball on, you know, through three quarters. But, but you saw a team offensively and defensively that can make some dynamic plays that I had questions about. And so uh, I'm going to assume, since Coach Kelly has a decade here in South Bend of developing teams throughout the year, that some of the things we'll talk about will be developed over the next few weeks uh, and that execution will mean will, will kind of stay the, the name of the game. Uh, although maybe jokes about execution shouldn't. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going to say like, there's, there's a chance that this team can be really explosive offensively and defensively. And that was exciting for me to see. Well, Bob, you know, we as sports writers like to talk about offensive line chemistry and I, I think it's tangible, but, but from a, person that played the position played a couple different positions on the line you know what 
what really is the trick there? I mean, do you need actual game action to get chemistry or can it be forged in the summertime or in training camp? How does that whole process work? Yeah, you know, I, I think that individuals can develop uh, and be ready for game speed uh, in theory ahead of time. But, you know, when you're working combination blocks between guards and tackles, centers and guards, you're pulling people up around and through, um, you're preparing for a game and going through a game plan. Uh, all of those things you, you need to be able to do with the, you know, five to seven, eight guys that are going to be doing that on a regular basis. And there is a trust factor that um, I wouldn't say that was the reason why we saw anything go hinky or haywire this week, but it's one of the things that I, I uh, will keep an eye on over the next few weeks to see how we develop. Are there some of those combination areas where, uh, you know, our tackles trust our guards, trust our center uh, a little more than they did here in week one? Yeah, speaking of chemistry, I, I mean, you, you had a, a left tackle uh, making his first career start, so he certainly had uh, not a lot of experience to draw on from that, and, and doing that on the road at Florida State certainly heightens that the the situation there. I'm, I'm curious what you thought of how he played, even though he left the game after the first half with the, with a knee injury, um, and if you could sort of describe – how difficult that that situation must have been for a, a high school a guy a guy that played his last game in high school making his first first start um, on the road at Florida State. Yeah, so you know, in my time, that we only had one guy make that jump. Yeah, freshman year, that was Brian Harris. Um, you know, Notre Dame great, uh, NFL great, Super Bowl champion Ryan Harris, and um, that that's a hard jump to make. At any point during the season, and to make it, you know, kind of game one to start in Tallahassee, uh, Doak Walker Stadium was going absolutely crazy. So uh, there are a lot of things that um, made me, as the game went on, kind of focus in more on on Blake and what he was doing. But by the time I had really taken in the big picture of the whole offensive line to focus on him, he was out of the game. Uh, and, and, and so I'll say, like, I think that's pretty good, right? Like, not that he's injured, not good, but, but he didn't do anything that stood out to me as, Ooh, there's, there's a, a glaring weakness. I think that he went against a couple of times, a really, really good transfer, uh, from university of Georgia. And, uh, so he saw some game speed, maybe a little quicker than you'd want to game one. I mean, that's why you have tune up games and he did not have that. But uh, really the problems I saw, you know, just came with some miscommunication when he went out of the game because, uh, you know, Carmody had to go in there and, and you know, you talk about Fisher having to start game one. Carmody went in there and took more snaps and he was prepped for week one too. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on Carmody coming in because I, I wonder, first of all, had, did you ever have to come in in the middle of a game uh, for an injury? And, and try to get into the rhythm. If so, what's that like? And then Carmody had worked a lot on the right side, both in springtime and in fall camp, uh, even though he was kind of the third tackle. Uh, how difficult is that to switch sides? Yeah, so coming in the middle of a game, I think I have a unique perspective. You know, I had started at center for an entire year. Then the next year, you know, we kind of did our six offensive line starters. And so I was floating between center and guard. Um, and so there was never a time that because of an injury, I had to go fly in. Uh, but I will say 
that when you're not taking the first snap of the game, you've got to find some way in your mind to get kind of amped up and ready for when your number's called. Because every snap that you're on the sideline, you can be mentally in tune with what the play call is, with what your position should be doing. Um, but you're able to do that, you know, by looking at the entire field and not having your hand in the dirt, you know, with the guy across from you wanting to take your lunch, so to speak. Um, the thing I will say, though, is is you're right. It's really interesting that Carmody, you know, had his right hand in the dirt for most of practice and leading up to the season, and then he got his first action on the left side. It's not impossible. Uh, matter of fact, there are guys who are pretty ambidextrous. My career at Notre Dame was played center for two years, played left guard for a year, and right guard for a year. So uh, it can be done. I will say in the middle of the game to go from, you know, a right guard or right tackle over to the left side, it, it feels a little off. Right. Like you've really got to trust your technique. Um, and, and I would say that for me, if I ever had to switch in a game for two or three plays as I went into the other side of the line, I might be just a half step slower because I, I needed to make sure that my body was remembering the that muscle movement really well. And so, um, you know, first series or two, it might have been weird, but. By the time that, uh, that that the game really started getting going, I mean, you saw offensive line protected relatively well as the game went on. And, and that was one of the things I was excited about, that our tackles, Carmody, and then, of, of course, on the other side with Lug did well. You mentioned some of the communication issues that showed up in pass protection. And to me, that's not terribly surprising considering you got – new new starters in there and, and working together for the first time. I, I'm curious about the, the, the running game. What did you notice any sort of questionable scheme concerns or was it more of Notre Dame? Not necessarily just, just getting beat, just getting beat up front and not necessarily winning their assignments. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I wish I could give you uh, more of an answer of like what I think the, the problem was uh, truth be told. I, I just, I don't think that we, uh, had enough of a sample size of really being able to grind the ball, you know, for lack of a better term, down somebody's throat. I mean, you look at the the team we had last year, uh, teams evolve year to year. We know that. But last year we'd run the stretch play, and it seems like every third or fourth stretch play, we'd break it for anywhere from 12 to 20 or a big gain even further of yards. And this game, it just felt like, there was more work to get back to the line of scrimmage than I anticipated, specifically on the right side with so much experience. Um, that could be a lot of things. One, I mean, let's talk about game plan. You're dealing with um, a, a defensive scheme at Florida State that we weren't really sure what we were going to see, personnel from all different places. I mean, getting ready for a team like this, you only have so much film to study for, so maybe there were some schemes that we didn't see. That's speculative, I know, but it's it's an issue. Um, but I also think that, you know, we getting into the speed of a game, we were successful throwing the ball downfield. And um, when you are successful and you find something that you do really well, sometimes it's hard to say, OK, we really need to work on our stretch running game. Um, and so we did what we had success with all through that third quarter. And we realized come the fourth quarter that we weren't able to run the ball near as effectively as we wanted to in that time. So I would expect some nine on seven drills to make sure we get uh, four yards in a cloud of rubber pellets a little bit this week. <laughs> 
Bob, what do you think is the reason? Let, let's assume Fisher's not going to play the next couple of weeks, that it's going to be Carmody. What, what would be a reasonable expectation in terms of improvement over, you know, playing Toledo and playing Purdue before Notre Dame starts to see the big time front sevens of Wisconsin, Cincinnati? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, what I would like to see is a, a really solidly executed game plan. You know, like what 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 what's the identity going to be? I think when you bring in a backup tackle, um, the one thing that all offensive linemen can do is 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 drive somebody you know down the field a little bit. So I think that we're really going to focus on maybe some run plays that this team is built really well for. Um, and uh, and I think we'll see some good use of play action when you got a quarterback that's got that kind of touch over the top, which we saw there in that third quarter uh, to give him just a little bit of time. You've got to develop a running game to really free that up. And so uh, that that's what I'd be excited to see. I think uh, really other than the one play where, you know, uh, I think Carmody was in at left tackle where he zigged when he should have zagged. Right. He stepped in to help his guard rather than staying out on the end. That was the only, like, scot-free sack we saw, like, untouched. You want to make sure you don't have any more of those, especially on your quarterback's blind side. Uh, but I think you're going to see a pretty good dose of, of running the ball. You want to see Kyron Williams really get after it. Love the changeup with Tyree. I loved he was able to get it up inside. Um, but – if I'm honest with you, I would really like to see us use the right side the way we use the left side, you know, years ago when we had, you know, Q and McGlinchey there on the left side. You knew it was going to the left and you did it anyway. When you have, you know, Lug, you've got uh, Kane Madden and Jarrett Patterson and uh, Michael Mayer, right? You you have an entire wing of your offense that you should be able to go ahead and, and dominate from, you know, that to the, the sideline of that side of the field. And uh, and build your offense around that. Bob Zeke Carell made his first start at guard after ha having played some center previously. He's a, a bit undersized um, at guard at six three two ninety five. I'm I'm curious what you think. That's a reason for concern, and, and if not, how how can that be overcome? Did, did you, are the how does how does one overcome those physical limitations at guard and? How much do those limitations sort of come into play at guard? Maybe when they wouldn't necessarily come and play at center. You know, I think you talk about the evolution of the game, right? You know, every decade it seems like offensive linemen are just a little bit different. You say six three two ninety five is undersized. Um, our entire <laughs> offensive line was six three six four, and you know, over the course of my career, coaches wanted us oscillating between two ninety and then my last year with Charlie three ten, right? And so uh, you've you've just got different sizes. But the year before. Uh, I, you know, ever snapped a, a football at Notre Dame, our center was uh, Jeff Fain, right? Notre Dame's all-American, all-world uh, NFL center. First-round uh, draft pick. First-round draft pick. Like, listen, like, and and Jeff Fain played, played. I, I would be shocked if he didn't play some games at 280-something, at right? He was just an absolute monster. And so you want to know how you counteract being a little undersized. You just get mean, Right. You be good with your hands. You win with your hands. You win with your leverage. Trust the guys around you. And you you know where you need to move that defender. That's the thing that, you know, I think Zeke Carell, if he's a center, I, listen, I love all offensive linemen. All right. No, no, no harm, no foul. I mean, no uh, disrespect to anybody. 
But if you could have five centers on an offensive line, you've got five people who are in tune with the play uh, at a certain level. And and I would uh, trust his ability to win with his hands, uh, to win with leverage, and to to move that defender that's against him where he wants them to go in really unique and creative ways. So I will be watching our left guard this year because that that excites me, that kind of player. Um, and uh, if he goes against some really big guys, I still think there will be some fun film sessions of him doing some damage. Bob, I'm, I'm wondering about um, Jack Cohn's foot speed and how that plays into what defenses might try to do how the linemen have to protect, you know, I think he's, you know, if you had a race with Tommy Reese and Jack Cohn, Jack Cohn would win, but there were times there were, there was a seam where he could take off and he did, and he got four yards. And I just used to seeing Ian book get maybe 12 in the same situation. So again, if you're a defense, do you, are you able to maybe, gear up and do more things because you don't have to worry about that. And also, again, as an offensive lineman is the fact, you know, he's not a sprinter. Does that play into how you, you know, your mindset and protecting him? Yeah. I mean, sure. I think that, you know, if we could all, you know, get like a copy of like right now, Patrick Mahomes is our quarterback. That'd be amazing. Right. (laughs) Like a quarterback that can throw from the pocket out of the pocket, you know, uh, run a 70-yard, you know, sprint down the sideline. Um, but but I think more than looking at what one player does or doesn't do, and let me just say this, um, he may not have the, the type of running speed and third down, get the first down ability as, as Ian Book um, had previously. But, but truth be told, you know, I played with one of Notre Dame's greatest quarterbacks ever in Brady Quinn. And while Brady was fast in the 40, um, he wasn't exactly the fleetest of foot you know, getting out of the pocket, right? He was meant to stay there. And we we kept his jersey clean as much as we you know possibly could because that's how our offense worked best. And that's the point that I would make, Eric, is it's not so much what Jack does or doesn't do, but how the offense is built around him. I think mm-hmm. the past couple of years, you had Ian Book, who, yes, could go ahead and get you that third and five when other quarterbacks couldn't. But sometimes he also ran himself into a sack, which would drive me crazy. There were also times um, that, you know, uh, he would overthrow receivers because those receivers weren't able to stack the corners and get open. As an offense, can I tell you the one thing I'm super excited about is I think we've got a couple options on the outside that can win deep. And so you don't need a quarterback always to go get third and five if your receivers can win and your you know, all world tight end can just sit on a five yard stick to get that first down. So this is going to be a different looking offense, but that actually excites me, uh, excites me as a player, just because I was never fast. So having a fast run around quarterback was really difficult because it just highlighted on the film how slow I was. (laughs) (laughs) Bob, I'm curious what your thoughts were on the wide receiver group that that we saw on, on Sunday night. I know, as reporters, we've tried to do our best in terms of communicating what the expectations were for those players and sort of what we've seen in practice. But those guys haven't been guys who have showed up on, on game days earlier in their career. So I think there's a lot of unknowns of what they would look like. What would you think of guys like Kevin Austin and Joe Wilkins and Brayden Lindsay and how those guys played uh, on Sunday night? I, I think if there's one thing uh, 
other than, you know, Mr. Kyle Hamilton pulling in two interceptions that you just need to say, this was as, as good as we could have ever expected and better. It was our wide receiver play. Um, I was, uh, I do kind of a running commentary on social media of the game. And uh, one of the things that was pretty constant and consistent for me is I was frustrated in the first half that every deep ball was underthrown. Uh, and I was frustrated right up until the underthrown ball in the end zone when Joe Wilkins made a grown man play and came back to catch it. And then you look in the second half at Braden Lindsay, who was, I think, a second or third option on, on a, a play action bootleg and Cone hit him in stride. And, and you look at Kevin Austin, he hit him deep one time, but he also hit him, you know, right on the line of scrimmage and he made a couple of shifty moves, you know, it's not about just the talent of one or two or three receivers, but how a receiving core can be built. And when you look at a team that we know will have the ability to run the ball, we know we have a big target who can be anywhere from five to 20 yards over the middle to be able to have speed like Lindsay and just overall receiving ability like Austin and Wilkins. Uh, it, it breaks the top off of a defense and opens up that intermediate game that we need in big time games. Some of the big games that we've lost have been because we haven't been able to challenge teams deep. And I think this receiving core will be able to do that. Um, I, I have a, it's not really a two part question. I have two questions. The first one is, is the reason you do the online commentary, is it because your wife will not listen to it? uh my my wife could not care less uh, about uh, what i think of this year's football team uh and uh, and so i i do that to keep silent right so i you know we've got four kids running around and three of them were in bed uh by the time the game was going on so it's either yell at the tv or or yell into the abyss that is you know social media and so i just yell into the abyss okay all right well my real question is this you know, there was a lot of criticism of Marcus Freeman's scheme in the fourth quarter, you know, with a three-man front and Florida State kind of running over them. I'm wondering what you saw from a standpoint of both Florida State's offensive line execution and maybe what Notre Dame was lacking in that front or, or tactically what they were doing that kind of allowed for that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I, w I kept thinking to myself in the fourth quarter beyond the initial question, like, what are we doing? The question then became like, <laughs> what, what, what would I do? Yeah. Right. Like you've you've got um, you've got some really fast running backs and an elite speed quarterback. Um, and you've got a defense who looked a little bit gassed and. I had questions. This is just me. I don't know the I don't know the team. I don't know their numbers. It looked like, you know, we had if we missed one tackle, we didn't have the top end speed at every position um to to really keep these guys in the box as it was. And so, you know, a three-man front with a couple of linebackers like a nickel with a bunch of extra DBs um with a team who's committed to running, yeah, you're giving up 10 yards a clip sometimes but but it's kind of like you're 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 keeping the team from hitting that next 90 yard gain and all you're asking your offense to do is go out and run for two first downs in the entire fourth quarter and the game's mm -hmm. over anyway the game the game's over 
I mean, they, they went for it on fourth down. We're up, you know, then we're up 18 going into the fourth quarter. If we get two first downs running the football, the game's over anyway. And so, um, you know, then Milton comes in. We changed our defense for overtime, and you saw a lot of success there. So I I, uh, I actually don't I don't mind the scheme, I think, the way some people do, but that's because I think the defense was counting on the offense doing what we should have been able to do, which is just get three and a half yards, three plays in a row, get a first down, move the sticks, and keep the clock moving. We just weren't able to execute that in the fourth quarter. Bob, I'm going to pin you down to a little blame game on my last question for you as someone who played center. The snap that Jack Cohn didn't handle, that the shotgun snap that was back to him, bad snap by Jarrett Patterson or bad job by Jack Cohn? Uh, so when I was a freshman, uh, first couple games of the year, Carlisle Holiday uh, was our quarterback. We were playing at home, and uh, Carlisle wasn't sure. He didn't know how I saw the game. And so uh, I looked up at the play clock. We had three seconds to snap the ball. Uh, he was clapping his hands. And as soon as it was about to change from one to zero, I go to snap the ball. Carlisle Holiday sees the clock about to go from one to zero, looks over at the official, and, and makes a timeout signal with his hands, and the ball literally goes next to his face mask and between his hands. Now, that was a beautiful snap. It was a <laughs> perfect snap. It was everything I was called to do. It should have been caught. But my offensive line coach uh, made it very, very clear to me, at any given time, uh, if, if anybody's going to take the blame, forget who we're giving the blame to. If anyone's going to take the blame between your pretty quarterback and your uh, your 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 hog molly center, it's going to be the hog molly center every single time. So, uh, regardless of who I think might actually be at fault for that, uh, Jarrett Patterson is just going to swallow that one and say, you know what, I could have done it better. I could have hit you square in the middle of the chest, and uh, and then we just move on. And we make sure we don't have that kind of miscue again. I, I wanted to ask you this one, Bob, because I wondered if it came up when you played. You know, when we had a chance to talk to Brian Kelly on Monday, he thought that part of the reason that Notre Dame didn't have a great surge in the running game was because of their silent cadence, that, that not everybody was kind of moving at the same time. And I guess my thought is, wouldn't that have come up, you know, with other with other people before, wouldn't that have been a problem before? Do you kind of buy into that reasoning? Yeah. You know, I mean, like, listen, you, you get into this kind of discussion and it's either like the, the legit rationale or it becomes an excuse. And so I won't know, the, we won't know the answer to that, you know, till later on in the season. Um, but it, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we had under Charlie Weiss was a really, really elite silent count and a way to make sure everybody was moving at the same time. And it takes communication across linemen who are able to listen to each other and not just focus on what their job is on a certain play. Um, and we haven't always had that kind of communication uh, under Coach Kelly yet, I would say. And so uh, that that doesn't surprise me. When, when Doak gets hopping like that, to be able to get everybody moving as one unit um, can be really, really difficult. So. Um, Obviously, you want to rectify that because it's not like we're going to go into quiet stadiums the rest of the year. So, um, yeah, I hope that doesn't become, you know, a regular thing we see that we find a way to kind of 
put a bow on that and 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 put that away. And I'll close with this. Can you let everybody know kind of what you're up to? I I have not been keeping up on the child count. I thought you were at two. <laughs> so you snuck two in on me. So let's find out their ages and then just what you're up to in life. Yeah. So um, my wife, Heather, and I have been married for 11 years now. Uh, and uh, we have four children. Celie is nine. Calliope is six. Uh, Deacon uh, is four. And Maverick just turned one. Oh, and wow. so, uh, yeah, so we, uh, I guess it was a little over three years ago, uh, kind of pivoted back from uh, over a decade working in the evangelical church as a, a pastor and leader there uh, to come back to the university where I work in development. I'm a regional fundraiser out in New England. Uh, I live here in town, actually up in Berrien Springs. We got a little bit of land uh, during the pandemic so our kids could uh, could get out and get dirty a little bit. And, uh, and so, yeah, so working for the university, heading out to Boston a couple times uh, a month and working with uh, the greatest alumni base, the greatest university family in the world. And, uh, and that just uh, allows me to, uh, to, to, to be me. Notre Dame was so good to me and such a big part of my life. I get to share that with people every day. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. We really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. You're always uh, someone we can call on to talk some offensive line with. So um, thanks again and uh, enjoy the rest of the season. Absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Go Irish. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Toledo. First one I have for us, Eric, is will Kyron Williams have more rushing yards or more receiving yards against Toledo? Well, he had more receiving yards against Florida State. And I think there are going to be games like that, even when he has a pretty productive running game. But I think Notre Dame is going to be so adamant about running the ball and kind of fixing those problems that I'm going to say he'll have more rushing yards in this game. Yeah, I'm with you. I think there might. I, obviously they have to be careful because you don't want to just pound your head against the wall and then like keep the game closer than it needs to be because you're trying to establish the running game. But um, the hope is that they have success in doing that. And so it's not, it's not like a, a risky proposition, but I do think there will probably be some stubbornness in trying to get some confidence with that offensive line in the running game and establishing that. So I, I will go with more rushing yards than receiving yards. Next one over under of 175 rushing yards for Toledo. Again, just because you don't get any from Cone or you get minimal from Cone, I think it's going to be under that. Um, I think it's certainly going to be more than the 65 they had against Florida State. But uh, I'm, I'm going to go under on that because I, I think Notre Dame's going to throw the ball around a lot. I think they're going to have mismatches in the passing game, and so they won't get to 175. I should have interrupted you sooner. I meant over 175 rushing yards for Toledo, not for 175 rushing yards from Toledo. Well, you get a bonus stat for <laughs> if you were wondering 175 yards for Toledo. I'm going to say under that. I, I just think what happened against Florida State was kind of fluky. Now, most of those yards came, those rushing yards came in the second half. And when Notre Dame was goofing around and not being um, aggressive, when they were kind of being passive in their defense and, and um, 
kind of in the prevent defense. Uh, so I think they'll get that squared away and, and we won't see that problem. And I also think they're going to get sack yardage, which in college, not pros, but in college takes off your rushing total. So I think that's going to happen. Right. That, unfortunately, that sack yardage didn't help a, a ton with the rushing totals against Florida State. But I, I do think that Toledo will be under. I'm not I just don't know that Toledo has the athletes to break the big runs that can hurt that total and was something that Florida State was able to do. So I will predict under 175 rushing yards for Toledo. Next up, will Michael Mayer score a touchdown? Why not? I, th- I think he's going to break the uh, – we had this question in the question segment a few podcasts ago, would he break the school record for touchdowns in a season? It's only six for tight end, and I think he will. So to be consistent with that, I'm going to say yes, he'll have a touchdown this game. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go with yes as well. Um, I think uh, he certainly played well on Sunday night and then also not well at the same time. It was bizarre. I just It's sort of like just how much he was used that he had enough opportunities to play as good as he did and also have some mistakes in terms of drops. But I do think that he will make his return to the end zone against Toledo. I mean, good luck. Good luck to anyone trying to stop him. <laughs> just he, he's, he tied the school record for nine receptions <laughs> in a game. Yeah, yeah, he's for a tight end. Yeah, and I mean, and that includes like two or three drops. So I think it, the opportunities are going to be there for Michael Mayer and uh, Jack Cohn. Certainly trust him. I think it was targeted thirteen times. Yeah. Next one is over under seven and a half tackles for JD Bertrand. Speaking of someone who had a lot of uh, action on Sunday night. He did incredibly productive. Eleven tackles in his first start. What a way to, what a way to get your um, career started. I think he's probably going to be over that um, because Notre Dame is down to six healthy linebackers, and one of them is Prince Colley, the freshman who hasn't really got a lot of practice reps. So I have a feeling JD's going to be playing a lot enough to get eight tackles or more. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I expect him to continue to be active. He did a good job of get, being all over the place. Now, certainly had some mistakes um, in terms of missed tackles at times, with, which wasn't he wasn't alone in that on that front uh, on on Sunday night. Um, but I, I I would expect him to be able to go over seven and a half tackles against Toledo. Next one over under five and a half tackles for Toledo linebacker Jonathan Jones. Right, Jonathan Jones, the former Notre Dame linebacker. He had six tackles in his uh, in in the win over Norfolk State. I don't know how early he came out of the game. He's played well for Toledo. Um, was a part-time starter last year. Um, I think he's going to be pretty excited to play Notre Dame. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say that he'll get to. I say say that he'll get to six tackles. You forgot something about Jonathan Jones. Not only is he a former Notre Dame linebacker, he's part of the former inspiration of the Keeping Up the Joneses segment. Uh, I remembered <laughs> that. I thought about that. <laughs> we used to have on the podcast where we would update uh, all the various Joneses on Notre Dame's roster. Jonathan wasn't the most productive of that group, those groups of Joneses. Um, but uh, we started that when Alizé Mack was Alizé Jones, so we had <laughs> <even> more. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think he'll – He'll be pretty fired up and asked to do a lot as, as one of their starting linebackers. So I, I will go over the five and a half tackle total that I set there. 
And then finally for us, uh, what's your final score prediction for Notre Dame Toledo? Well, if they can score 38 in regulation on Florida State with as good athletes as they had, uh, Toledo's a good team. I, I think I think it'll be Notre Dame 42, Toledo 17. All right, we're in the same ballpark. I have Notre Dame 41, Toledo 20. Okay. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hanson NDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What were you the most surprised about, both good and bad, in the FSU game? Also, after watching the first this first game, has your ceiling for this team dropped? And then to make a playoff run, what most needs to improve and is the amount of improvement needed possible? So there's a lot of questions there. Let's take those like one at a time. You you tell me what your your good and bad surprises were, and then I'll weigh, on my, weigh in with my good and bad surprises. Okay, we'll start with the bad surprises. Run defense, fourth quarter defense, poor tackling, the degree of struggle in the running offense. Uh, those would be my bad surprises. And my good surprises, Jack Cohn, uh, his numbers, J.D. Bertrand and Kyron Williams, the decision to have him return punts, even though he didn't break one. I love that decision. Yeah, I, I had a hard time coming up with good surprises. I, I, I And maybe it's being too uh, pompous in my own thoughts of how the season was going to go. Like, I, I, I thought... I thought that Jack Cohn would do some of the things that he did in terms of throwing the ball deep. Um, and then that sort of aligned with some, some that what I anticipated. I didn't expect the offense to rely on him as much as it needed to certainly. Um, so that, I, that was a surprise. The Kyron Williams thing was definitely a surprise um, in the positive, although it didn't necessarily result in anything um, substantial. Um, so those were the good surprises I thought. Um and J.D. Bertrand, I mean, that's a guy that we th- said, like, during camp, like, that was one of our surprises during camp. So I was like, well, does it, does it count as a surprise anymore? Now, I guess I, I don't know that I predicted him to have 11 tackles. And also, I didn't think he would have to start because I thought Maris Leifau would be out there. But um, that, to, to go out there and per- play the, as well as he did was certainly a, a good outcome. Um, in terms of bad surprises, the, the, the running game on both sides, um, I, I think, uh, were, were right. Like you mentioned, I expected – um, much better from Notre Dame's running game, um, even with the new offensive line. So those were the bad surprises. Um, to our, to Marie's next question, as for the has has your ceiling for this team dropped after the first game? No, it hasn't because I do think that the problems are fixable. Um, and you know, I I saw a lot of other teams that were pretty highly ranked like Oklahoma struggle in their initial game. Uh, Iowa State barely got by Northern Iowa. Um, and and the, the Oklahoma and Iowa State games were at home. Uh, Notre Dame actually moved a spot up in the AP poll from nine to eight. They stayed the same in the coaches poll at seven and their odds to win the national championship went from 66 to one five days ago to 40 to one. So I still expect that this is a team that has fixable problems. 
you know, ask me when we get into the um, Wisconsin, Cincinnati, that whole stretch, that's when we're really going to find out how, how well the problems have been fixed. Yeah. So sort of, as I alluded to in the introduction to the podcast, I don't think it's wise to make any grand assessments after the first game. I, I so I wouldn't say that the ceiling has dropped. Um, now, if some of the questions that we have about this team and the, the poor play that we saw in certain areas continues to repeat itself now that then that is a, is a, is a concern, but one game to start the season first time in a, against a crowd like that in a long time. Um, I'm not, I'm not uh, going to overreact um, too, too much. Now maybe I'll be slow to reacting to what should, <laughs> how I should react eventually, but I, I I'm a little more conservative when it comes to that in terms of making a playoff run, in terms of what they need to improve and how much improvement is needed. What are your thoughts on that? I think uh, the defensive line has to become the most dominant position group on this team. And I, and really you could say that about the front seven, which is again, pleaded with the linebackers a little bit. Uh, Continual improvement from the offensive line running game has to evolve. That's tied to the offensive line. And the cornerbacks need to improve. I don't think they were horrible in the first game, but I think there's certainly room for improvement there. So those are the things that I, I think need to improve. Yeah, the uh, playoff run would require better offensive line play, no doubt, but more consistency in the running game. Um, and defensively, I think just allowing fewer big plays, um, whether or not that's the follow of the defensive line, the linebackers, the corners, or the safeties, I think uh, there needs to be – an overall limitation of, of big plays to be able to, to do those things. And I, I think all those things are pretty realistic. Um, can Jack Cohn play like he played on Sunday night all season long? I, I'm not sure if that would be the case. So um, if we were going to talk about where are there some improvements, are there going to be some regressions maybe to the mean um, from some of the guys that played really well on Sunday. Um, so I, I think it's uh, too early to, certainly to say, um, but I think everything that Notre Dame wants to do is still within reach. Um, and uh, it's up to Notre Dame to continue to develop and make sure that it is a possibility. Next question is from Michael Kinney at Domer 747. Who, if any, in your opinion, were players who had a good game, but maybe we didn't hear much about the players who quietly put together a noteworthy effort and aren't getting the mentions they deserve. Well, I think a lot of them did get the, <laughs> they deserve door got the game ball cone austin uh bertrand um obviously foskey and kyle hamilton i mean those guys got a lot of love i guess the two people that i would single out are the adam malola twins i thought they were pretty solid they had five identical five tackles each and each had half a sack and I believe it was on the same sack. Um, so the Adam Lola twins with their twin statistics. Yeah, I, I noted the Adam Lola's as well. I thought they were they both played well and were overshadowed by Isaiah Foskey. Um, and uh, neither of them necessarily overshadowed each other because they both um, did some good things. I thought Cam Hart did some nice things. He, he showed some physical uh, support against the run, which I thought was really good, or any, and even maybe some short uh, screen plays. Um, and so I thought that was a good thing from him. 
I mean, maybe maybe you could say Kyron Williams. I mean, he played well, even though the running game didn't do well. I mean, certainly his his at his additions in the in the passing game were were definitely um, helpful. I, and his touchdown catch. I mean, he basically beat two guys on his own out, out in the out in the open field to the end zone. Um, that's pretty impressive. Now, I, I, like I, I feel like sometimes it's hard to like find overshadowed guys um, when we're talking about. Uh, Notre Dame football because there's so many people interested in it and so many people covering it. So, um, but I, I think those are probably performances that aren't necessarily top storylines coming out of the game, but um, were were good performances that were were put out there by Notre Dame players. Next question is from at ndjeff06. Do you see both Tommy Reese and Marcus Freeman learning to stay aggressive rather than just trying to burn clock when up big? Notre Dame was starting to figure it out until they decided to milk the clock on both sides of the ball. This team, albeit one game, does not look like it is built for that. Well, I don't know how sound it would be for Notre Dame to be continue to take deep shots when you want to run clock, um, especially if you're going to have incomplete passes, then you're stopping the clock. I think Tommy Reese needs to get the running game going. I think Marcus Freeman, Brian Kelly had a tactical – mistake in the fourth quarter with the way they played. And Bob Morton brought up a good point that, you know, had the offense got some first downs, those wouldn't have been as critical errors, but that whole three man front in the fourth quarter was icky. And, and it just looked like uh, Florida state just was owning the line of scrimmage against a defensive line where I didn't think would be possible. Yeah, I, I thought Marcus Freeman needed to be more aggressive in the fourth quarter. I think it was somewhat understandable given that they were beat on big plays earlier in the game and he didn't want to give them up late, but there needs to be a better balance in terms of uh, the defensive focus in those situations. Um, as for Tommy Reese, I, I, I'm not sure how much I fault him for for how the game ended in terms of play calling. I mean, the, the big series obviously is the first – when you have first and five and you don't, you don't convert – um, that into a first down, um, they run the ball. They run the ball on first down. He only gets one yard on second down. Um, they uh, they opt to pass and they can't come up with a completion. And then Jack Cohn is is sacked on third down. Now, so I, I so I don't know that you would say that that was conservative play calling. They just didn't execute. Um, so I, I think that he, Tommy sort of understood that they weren't running the ball as well as he would like them to. So maybe shied away from trying to run the ball now. So I, I guess it's like, well, what do you see as more aggressive is trying to run the ball more aggressive or is it trying to throw the ball more aggressive? Um, so I, certainly there could be improvements there. Um, but that, that was the series is like, man, they, they really need to come up with the first down there and they didn't. And I'm not sure. I think even Brian Kelly indicated the third down play. Jack Cohn just looked in the wrong spot and he had a guy's open on a slant that could have converted the first down and uh, instead he was sacked. So um, I think there's definitely room for improvement. I, I, I think I saw there was more things that maybe I disagreed with earlier in the game from Tommy Reese, um, especially like the third and five run <laughs> design run call for Jack Cohn. Oh, that, no. that one was, that one was awful. Um, but uh I, I, I think uh, there's certainly room for improvement uh, on both sides of the ball in terms of play calling. Um, at Clutch Sports ND asks, what did you see from the running game that caused it to be so ineffective? Well, um, it's not something that I saw. It was something Brian Kelly tried to explain on Monday about the cadence 
um, being a factor where people weren't getting off the ball at the same time. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. You know, from what I observed, I thought there were times they just didn't look in sync. They looked more like five individuals than they looked like one unit. And right. they weren't, you know, some of the combinations weren't uh, just, uh, you know, happening for them. And, and that's got to get better. And then again, they, you know, I think having a quarterback with a different dimension that they haven't, I mean, none of them have had a quarterback like this that's so much more pocket-oriented. I think there's a little bit of an adjustment to that for them um, because he's really not involved in the running game much. And the play that Tyler brought up will be one of the clunkers of the season. <laughs> so, uh, uh, But again, I, I still feel like these are things that can get fixed because there's talent there. I mean, there's five good individuals there, five better than good individuals there. Yeah, that that uh, third down run by Jack Cohn, the, the, Zeke Carell was pulling on that, and he sort of tripped trying to get around Jarrett Patterson, and so that sort of threw off the timing of everything. There wasn't a lot of um, push in front of him, but him leading around as the lead blocker didn't uh, didn't really develop as they had hoped. Um, and I, that sort of – I mean, that was sort of, to me, a running theme of the, the lack of success in the running game is that it seemed to be one bad block ruining a running play and, that, and that's so easily can happen um whether it was lug or corral or matt king madden um or a tight end um so they just need to have better consistency as a unit that's what i think gets overlooked sometimes uh, on the offensive line you can have three great offensive linemen but if two are messing up it's going to be an issue so um that the those numbers aren't necessarily like reflective of who i think are good or, or not good on the offensive line I just pick random numbers but um I just think that there needs to be – they need to get on the same page and need to have a higher rate of execution across the line at every every position um, in order to increase the uh, production in the running game. Next one is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan 13. Can you guys break down the offensive line play, chalk it up to first game and breaking in a new line, or are we in for some battles on the line of scrimmage week in and week out? Uh, what, and what was up with Patterson's botched snaps? Um, well, I will say rewind the tape and listen to what Bob Morton said. That was probably <laughs> more insightful than what I could say now. I mean, I, I expect slow progress. I think that's reasonable. Um, we mentioned the si silent cadence. Um, you know, I'm not sure what happened with um, Patterson and Cone. You know, they've worked together for about a month. You know, Patterson was in the spring so maybe those things will get a little bit better and again maybe some of it was the noise patterson's awfully good cone's an experienced guy i, I don't think we're gonna see repeats of that yeah I, the first patterson snap um i'm not sure it was his fault that was what i asked uh bob about earlier it was a little high and hot but on the replay you can see jack cone looked away um yeah. after he had signaled that he was ready for the snap which is a mistake like you can't as soon as he lifts his knee, he's letting Kane Madden know, "Hey, let Zeke or let uh, let Jarrett know that I'm ready to go." And uh, so Jack has to be focused on this on the snap at that point and can't take his eyes off it and just uh, let that one get by him. Um, the other one, it looked like uh, Jarrett Patterson thought Cone was under center for some reason. That was the way 
um, that played out. You would think that a guy would know if it's some uh, someone's hands were underneath their butt, but uh, sometimes that that happens. Maybe um, Zeke Burrell was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, in, in terms of the offense, the 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 offensive line play as a group. Um, obviously, like I, I I agree with a lot of what Bob said. Uh, um, and the, in terms of the pass protection, I thought there were some some of those issues that he mentioned in terms of communication. I thought. Um, I, I can provide a couple of examples for anyone's interested. Kane Madden slid away from a defensive tackle on one play and he didn't have any help from anyone other than Kyron Williams. And you can't ask Kyron Williams to, to take over a defensive tackle, no matter how good of a, a run a pass blocker he is. So that to me, that was more of a mental lapse and not a physical uh, like beatdown. Um, Jermaine Johnson, second sack, um, both Blake Fisher and Zeke Carell were there, but they didn't work together. Well, the brunt of the rush, sort of went through Correll, and in my opinion, Blake Fisher didn't help him enough. Um, so Correll needs to be better in that situation, but um, Blake Fisher could have made it easier on him. So those are some of the things that I think that we you see with this new offensive line combination that I think that they can eliminate. Um, I, I, I'm, this line has to prove be, uh, in the coming weeks that it can be physically dominant. I, I, I don't expect that it will be the same as it was last year. Um, this is it's just it's a different line, the different makeup. And uh, I just don't think that these guys as a group are as physical as the, the guys were last year. Um, but that can be overcome with technique and playing together um, because you can sort of um, eliminate those mistakes. But then when those mistakes happen, it's harder to hide that because you, you're just not able to physically beat someone as, as well as maybe you could when you're, you're Aaron Banks or Liam Eikenberg, um, whereas maybe Josh Lug or Zeke Carell. Um, can't can't physically dominate in that same way. Um, so I, I think there's room for improvement, certainly, and I, I think there will be improvement. Um, and if there's not, uh, they're going to be in for a bit of a long season if uh, if they can't get their get their act together. Next question is from Chris Fleck at Chris Fleck One. Thoughts on Blake Fisher's debut before the injury? He fits the part and seemed to hold his own. Well, other than the injury, which we don't know the severity of yet, but I am guessing when we talk to Brian Kelly on Thursday, he's going to say he's out at least for the Toledo game. You know, I, I, I like him. In fact, I love Blake Fisher uh, <laughs> from a football standpoint. And I didn't think he, you know, looked like a first round draft choice, but I thought he held his own on the times that I was watching him. Uh, you know, I think what, your expectation is with a freshman offensive lineman is that you're really going to notice them because they're making right. mistakes. And so I wasn't noticing him. I'm going to rewatch that part of the game at some point this week. I rewatched the end of the fourth quarter in overtime. That's the only part I've gone back over so far, but I'm going to do that. But I, I just, when he gets back on the field, I think it's going to be good for Notre Dame. Well, we well, we have all the game covered then because I've rewatched the first half. <laughs> so we got we got between the two of us, we've got the rewatch down. Um, I, I thought he did pretty well for his first start. Um, he's a guy that I want to see finish some more plays. I think that's something Brian Kelly has mentioned, um, and sort of the example that I just talked about a little bit a little, little bit ago about him not helping Z Carell finish off that block on Jermaine Johnson was somewhere where they, that Blake Fisher could help Barry Johnson, and instead he, he sort of coasted a little bit. Um, I didn't necessarily see the athleticism or that that Brian Kelly was so effusive in praising. 
Um, and, and maybe that was related to the knee issue. I didn't see a specific play where it occurred, so I'm not exactly sure when it happened. I, I know that he didn't play the final drive of the first half, but he was in there for the touchdown. I believe the, I believe the last play that he was in there um, was the, the touchdown pass to Joe Wilkins Jr. And so I didn't see anything happen to him on that play. Um, so I'm, I'm curious when that occurred and how, how it affected him throughout the game um, when he was out there or if he was it actually happened on that last play. Um, and so uh, hopefully he is out for a small amount of time, but I, I think uh, he did well. And, and sort of to Bob's point, like he did, if you weren't looking for Blake Fisher, I don't know that you would have known that that was a first year, first year starter, freshman starter on the, at playing left tackle um, because he didn't make a lot of mistakes. Next question is from at coffee. Dark roast looks as though one of the biggest differences from this year's run defense to last year was all the run fits in Lee's scheme versus having pure athletes be aggressive in Freeman's outside of Kyle Hamilton, Drew White and Myron Tangabaloa Mosa. Are we sure that we have all the athletes on the field? And then he also said more prior, more Isaiah prior, I should say. Yeah. Um, I think it's more, I think I agree with Brian Kelly. I think it's more of a mentality and getting used to thing than it is not having good enough athletes. I mean, I, I would say if you took Notre Dame's athletes and Cincinnati's athletes, you would pick Notre Dame's and Cincinnati was really good defensively last year and is, really good this year. They do have two preseason All-Americans on their defense, so they're not, you know, we're not talking about shabby athletes. Um, you know, and you, you just think about who, I, I think even though J.D. Bertrand played really well, I think they miss Maris Leofau because Maris can do more things, I think, than J.D. can. I think, again, J.D. played great. I think Maris just has a wider skill set, but I, I don't, you know, when you think about Foskey, I mean, there's some really good athletes. I, I don't think it's athleticism as much as it is other things that, that didn't come together. Yeah. I, I, when they lost Maris Leofow, they lost their best athlete in my opinion. So uh, that certainly hurts them. I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure which guys you would point to and say, this guy's a better athlete. So he needs to be on the field. Um, I mean, Maybe Prince Kali, um, but he's a freshman, so I don't know that we or he's ready to play at the level they would need him to. Although I think they they may be getting close to asking him to do so. Um, I don't know if Notre Dame has a good enough athlete at strong safety right now. Um, D, DJ Brown got beat on that long run. He he took uh, an angle and then got juked um, on the back end of that that what was it? 91 yard run, um, 89, 89 yard run. Uh, so th those are areas that Notre Dame, I, I just, I, I'm not, I, I'm not sure what is preventing them from playing better on defense is a lack of or, or playing the wrong guys. I just think they have to play better. I, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of shuffling in the lineup. Now, certainly like I, I noticed when that series was going on that they had a lot of number two guys on the field. They had, um, and certainly we see one that at B's. times one, B's. one, one B's, I should say. Um, and uh, we, we, we were used to that on the defensive line, but we're not used to seeing that as much at the linebacker level. And then at like safety and even corner, because that Tariq Bracey was out on the field at that time, not playing nickel. Um, so I, I, I just think that there maybe needs to be some better balance to make sure that they're not 
running all of their one B's slash two guys out there at the same time. And maybe, maybe be a little bit more cognizant of that. Um, but I, I mean, I mean, Kyle Hamilton was still out there. Kurt Heinish was still out there. Um, and I'm not sure who the other corner was off the top of my head. So that, but other than that, I think they're mostly back at number twos on the field at the same time. And so that might not have been the, although you would think when you got Florida state backed up, uh, near their own end zone, you don't have to worry about that, but obviously it can change quickly with an 89 yard touchdown run. Uh, next question is from Andy Reed at ND Irish fan underscore NC. It's very evident our defensive philosophy has changed from bend don't break to high risk, high reward. With a lack of top end talent at the cornerback position, what options do we have to limit big plays while confusing corner quarterbacks in terms of where the pressure is coming from? Okay, so I'm not sure that the cornerbacks were the problem in this game. Maybe at times, but you you mentioned DJ Brown was the one that had the bad run fit on the long run. Houston Griffith got caught in man to man on the long pass that was sixty yards. Right. Um, and I think the lack of aggression in the second half was a problem. So I think it was a play call schematic thing in the second half. I'm not saying the cornerbacks were great, but I thought. You know, I thought they held up okay in the in the game, considering you know Florida State had some decent receivers. So um, I think they need to continue to improve. But again, I think some of the problems were bigger elsewhere. Yeah, and I and I think they generated enough pressure. I think part of the issue was the pressure didn't finish the job enough times. They let Jordan Travis get out and and create some plays, um, and that hurt them. Um, I think you certainly. Marcus Freeman needs to try to limit it, limit the mismatches in coverage. Like you mentioned, Houston Gr- Griffith wasn't good enough to cover a running back one-on-one um, for a passing touchdown. He failed that assignment and uh, he either needs to be better at that or they need to not put him in that position. Um, so whatever that decision is, I think it's something they have to, con- they have to contemplate uh, the crazy interception that Kyle Hamilton had where he ran all the way across the field Um that had Justin Adam Alola chasing a running back real route at the start of it. Um, and he's not going to win that battle very often. Um, it, it looked like Cam Hart may have been asked to pick him up after he got to a certain depth, but that didn't happen either. I think he saw the quarterback rolling to his right and, and came up rather than staying with the running back. And so um, I think Marcus Freeman, as the season progresses, can and should and probably will learn his personnel better to not put them in losing positions. Um, uh, and then once that happens, the players have to be assignment sound. So I think the, in terms of generating pressure, obviously I, I always think like generating pressure up the middle is going to help um, because it's going to affect the quarterback the most um, in terms of what he sees right away. Um, and then it's important for the, the guys on the outside to not let him escape. Um, so I, I think that's um, in terms of, Playing at playing with more risks and more rewards, it, it, I think it's really going to come down to Notre Dame being assignment sound and not losing their one-on-one matchups. And you can't have coverage miscommunications. You can't have um, guys getting beat in one-on-one situations on, on, on a regular basis if that's the way you're going to play your defense. Next question is at NDF underscore discord, which is something we discussed a little bit already. What does the linebacker situation look like going forward without Maris Leofau and Paul Mawala and potentially Shane Simon in the short term? Is there a chance we see Prince Colley getting meaningful reps? 
Well, I actually wrote about that last night um, and asked Brian Kelly that very question. Yes, they're going to have to count on Prince Collie because they only have five other linebackers right now that are healthy. And again, we'll find out probably Thursday the severity of uh, Shane Simon's shoulder injury, which they didn't think was going to be something super serious like season ending. But right now you have Bo Bauer and Drew White. You have uh, Prince Collie and J.D. Bertrand, and you have Jack Kaiser, and you have Isaiah Pryor. You have a little bit of position flexibility with Kaiser and maybe Bo Bauer. Uh, but, you know, I think as long as there's not another injury, they can kind of live with that group of five. When Shane Simon comes back, he's got a real opportunity to kind of have a good end to his senior year. But I think they're good enough as long as there's not another injury. If there is, I mean, they certainly have some options. They could move Kia, Kahun, Kahanu Kia back from the Viper, move him back to linebacker. Uh, I guess you could do that with Asita Kwanu, although Asita, we don't know how long he's out. He doesn't look like he's getting closer to being able to play anywhere right now. He's been injured for a while, so I think those are the options. Yeah, I I think you covered all that. I, one thing I wanted to add was uh, I didn't. I thought I would see Jack Kaiser make more of an impact uh, on Sunday than he did. I, I, I'm not sure what the snap count was, so I'm curious, like, did Isaiah Pryor play a, a lot more than Jack Kaiser or not? I, I, I've seen her remember seeing Isaiah Pryor more, but that could be just like Isaiah Pryor was near the ball more often than Jack Kaiser was when he was on the field. Um, I, I think one of the other options would be playing more nickel in situations. Um, so then you can, you can get away with playing two linebackers. And then, so I would maybe in that situation, you're playing a Rover and a middle linebacker and uh, not having to call on, Prince Collie, or maybe, I mean, I mean, it could probably be any number of things. It could be, so I, I would imagine like one of your linebackers is either Drew White, Bill Bauer, or JD Bertrand in a nickel package. And then the other linebacker is, is your, your Rover with Isaiah Pryor, or Jack Kaiser. I think maybe there's a chance we see some more of that. If uh, they're not as trustworthy, if, if, if they're not ready to trust Prince Collie with the, with a lot of work yet. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Toe for 15. What is the program's goal on punt returns? Is it to simply fair catch and bring out the offense? Is it to try and block punts? Do they want an electric punt returner? Tired of the same old fair catch you narrative. And that is what I would call an overreaction to one game. What is you, what are your thoughts, Eric? Right. Um, you know, we had a chance to talk to Brian Polian both in the spring and in late and fall camp and, you know, I think they would really like to make their emphasis blocking punts, pressuring punts, making them shorter and and not as high uh, by by putting pressure on the punter. Having said that, if you're going to put Kyron Williams back there, a starting running back, uh, your your Heisman Trophy candidate, your most dynamic player, I don't think you're committing to be fair catch you. There's a lot of other people that could stick their hand in the air. <laughs> so, you know, I think eventually we'll see that move pay dividends. I really like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brian Pullian has been very clear and honest about his philosophy. And I, we had a couple of chances to talk to him about that. So um, if Chris Buckley has not uh, been able to read those on our, on Indiansider.com, uh, 
reach out to me and I can provide you a link. Uh, but, but I mean, just this decision alone to put Kyron Williams back there, like you said, I mean, they, they, they obviously want to do something with these opportunities, but they're, Kyron has been taught to not put himself in a, in a bad position too. I, I, there, he did fair catch at times and the, he made those decisions based on the, what he was surrounded by after one week, Florida state was 46th in net punting with 41.75 yards average. Um, so it's not like Notre Dame was losing the field possession position battle in the punting game in some significant way. So there are limited opportunities for meaningful punt return situations. I think people don't necessarily recognize that if they've been watching football for a long time where they used to see maybe more punt returns, it's just the the punting strategy has changed a lot and they're, they're, they're more, they, they, they want to limit your opportunities to return the ball and they're not going to try to punt it really far and then give you opportunities to return it. So if they can pressure the punter and, and force them into worse punts and then fair catch it, Notre Dame is certainly fine with that. But obviously by putting Kyron Williams back there, they're also interested in, in getting some potentially game breaking plays back there, but there's, there's only going to be a few opportunities for those. If that per game, um, next question is from Neil Snyder at Naples. Neil OT for Florida State. The play called was the play that was called not a fumble but an incomplete pass. Why then was that not intentional grounding? Well, I'll tell you what, we're cut from the same cloth because that is my exact question. Why wasn't an in- intentional grounding? You know, I maybe thought it was unintentional grounding that it slipped out of his hands, but. I, I I just I think that was just a terrible call all the way around. McKenzie certainly his instinct was to jump on the football thinking it was a fumble. You know, I don't think he was being trying to cover all his bases. And and again, if it was a forward pass, then who was the pass to? His feet? You know, he can't he can't catch it with his feet and go running. I, I just was mystified by that and need. Um, you know, I don't normally get too hyped up about officials, even bad calls, but man, that was just, I I couldn't see an explanation for that. And as, as it turned out, it turned out good for Notre Dame because their kicker was a lot, uh, more comfortable kicking from 50 yards than he was 37. Yeah, I could be wrong on this, but I'm not sure that you can add an intentional grounding penalty through the replay process. So I think that's what the explanation is. Now, maybe, maybe I have that wrong, but I don't think they can add an, it once they determine that it is a pass. I don't think they can also say, well, then that was an intentional grounding. I'm not sure that that is possible in the replay process. Now, now maybe it is. And if it is, then it should have been intentional grounding. I, I just, I don't think it was a pass. I thought it was a fumble. Um, I thought he brought he it. Pumped. Yeah. I thought he, he brought it back far enough. I mean, it was down around his waist from my recollection. So I thought he, um, it would have been ruled a fumble, but I, I think that's the distinction there that once they call that an incomplete pass, I don't think they can go back and then call it intentional grounding. I'm not sure that's a possibility um, because they, they don't like adding penalties through the, the, the replay process. And against the general philosophy. Uh, next question is now, and obviously people might disagree with that philosophy, but I think that, I think that's how that works. I'm, I'm now. If there are some, yeah, but then then don't say it was a pass then, because then you're just making yourself look silly. I, I thought it was bad. I bad 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 bad. Uh, next question is from Douglas 
Douglas McCannelly at D underscore McCannelly, having watched most of Notre Dame's opponents through overreaching glasses, which team surprised you the most? Um, I had a, I, I was, I don't have overreaching glasses. I have white sunglasses. <laughs> I wasn't sure what that phrase was. I don't know if that was a typo or I just didn't get it. <laughs> but uh, I would say, you know, Wisconsin was a little bit surprising to me. North Carolina, very surprising to me. Uh, Stanford and Navy, how bad they were in their openers. I didn't expect them to be, you know, super competitive teams, but for Marshall to run Navy 42 to seven, I'm thinking what's going on with Ken Niamata Lolo, um, their, their coach. And then Stanford just got smothered by Kansas state 24 to seven. I guess the good surprise was Virginia tech beating North Carolina, Virginia Tech is in the new top 25 poll at 19 and North Carolina fell all the way down to 24. So those would be kind of my, my picks there. Yeah. Number one for me was North Carolina's offense struggling and particularly their offensive line looked really bad. Um, So that was the biggest surprise to me. They did not look great in that Virginia Tech environment. And then the Hokies defense certainly looked good on top of that. And that was a little bit of a surprise to me as well. Um, I would say I was surprised by Wisconsin's offense, <clears throat> not looking better than it did. Um, but I, I guess I would say North Carolina was more surprising. I, I think a lot more, high, more highly of Sam Howell than I do of Graham Mertz. Not that I think Graham Mertz is a slouch, but um, Sam well, Howell. I wrote that in my notes column that I turned in a little while ago. He's a tremendous slouch. I mean, <laughs> he, he's, Statistically, he is so he, far, he yes. Was, he was 20 of 21 against Illinois in the opener last year uh, and had five touchdowns, no interceptions. Uh, I've got the numbers right here. And since then, he is 120 of 209, seven interceptions, four touchdowns, 1,150 yards. That translates to a 103.25 passing efficiency rating. I mean, we're not talking small sample size, and I know he had some COVID issues last year. How bad is 103.25? If we go back to the last non-interrupted full season, which is 2019, out of 110 qualifiers, where do you think uh, 103.25 would get you? Uh, 70. 106. Wow. Um, that same year, Jack Cohn was 19th and Ian Book was 24th. So he's got some, I think there's some heat on him right now. I think he's tremendously talented, but when the bright lights come on, he's got to get it done. So the Notre Dame game is going to be a huge opportunity for him. I just want some credit for not guessing like the very end of that to make your stat sound better. <laughs> but, okay, thank you. <laughs> I think it's uh, 107. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I, I will add, I didn't watch the Wisconsin game live and I, I missed a lot of that because I was traveling. Um, so maybe I would be more surprised by how bad it looked if having watched all of it live. I mean, I, I certainly saw highlights and caught glimpses of it, but. Um, he missed wide open receiver that would have given them the win and and the interceptions were bad all right speaking of quarterbacks next question from rich morazzi would 
what would have been the ceiling and the floor if Phil Dracovic was the quarterback this year for Notre Dame? Well, there would have still been offensive line issues and there still would have been some defensive hiccups in the opener. Um, but he brings a lot of what Jack Cohn does in the passing game with a stronger arm and a better running game. So I think there's, with Phil being the quarterback, there's more margin for error. You have a little bit more wiggle room with your error. But I think, you know, Jack Cohn certainly played great. Phil Jakovic had an amazing game against the Colgate toothbrushes. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, they won 51 and nothing. I have Boston College in my top 25. Uh, I think Phil's tremendous. So um, people are going to compare those two the rest of the year, and I can't stop it. But, uh, you know, I think it's a fair question. I think, you know, if you were going to pick between the two, you'd pick, you'd pick Phil Jakovic. Yeah, and I, I think if forced to ask the question, answer the question honestly, Brian Kelly and Tommy Reese would say they'd rather have Phil Dracovic than Jack Cohn too. But that that wasn't that was never really the decision though. The decision last year was whether or not Phil Dracovic's ceiling last season was higher than Ian Book's last season. Their ceiling last season, um, and Phil Dracovic wasn't willing to wait around long enough to find out if he could take the Notre Dame's offense to higher levels this year. And I, you can't necessarily blame Phil for that either. I mean, that's his right to, to want to get somewhere and play at Boston college right away. Like he was able to do. So I think Phil Dracovic ceiling is, is, is higher than Jack Cones. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how this season plays out to see how much higher it is. Um, I, I think most people would cert. I think pretty much anyone would agree that Phil Dracovic's ceiling is higher. Um, I, I, I want to see, how Phil plays this year and certainly see how Jack plays this year to get a better sense of how different they truly are. Certainly Phil's a better athlete, no doubt. And I think he probably has better arm strength too. Um, but the, but the decision-making process is a very important part of the quarterback game. And I'm not sure, um, how those two stack up against each other yet. So I, that would, uh, that's sort of the, Thing that's still sort of left out there to sort of decide how sort of wide the gap is between the two quarterbacks, in my opinion. Next and last question is from Bert Leonard at Bert2834. Uh, an odd one here. What is your best solution to get rid of drunk hiccups? In my area in southwest Ohio, we hold our breath for 10 seconds and then take a big drink before exhaling. What are your thoughts? Well, I tried to answer this before I Googled it, and I was... <laughs> I was right. The number one, there is a list of what you should do when you have drunk hiccups. And what I came up with was a spoonful of sugar. And I do that, would do that for regular hiccups. Um, I would, I would do that with my children. Uh, and that was the number one thing. The, the interesting thing on the list was the valse of a maneuver which is try to exhale with your mouth closed while pinching your nose. If you're still drunk, I'm not sure if that's possible. <laughs> I kind of like rub the back of your neck. Um, that seems like it would be soothing if nothing else. So those are my things. The other thing is maybe look yourself in the mirror and don't do it again. <laughs> don't get drunk hiccups. Um, I, I've always been a hold your breath guy. I've never tried to, I've never done the taking a big drink af before exhaling. Um, 
So that that sounds a little dangerous when uh, <laughs> when you're already. I think drunk. that just <laughs> the drug process, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that seems like it would uh, add to the hiccups potentially. Um, uh, you have done far more. I've never heard of the the spoonful of sugar thing. Uh, my parents never did that for us. So um, now, obviously, we, I, I don't. They didn't do that for us when we were <laughs> drunk hiccuping. It doesn't do much for the hyperactivity part of things, but it usually cures the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. So hopefully Bert can, uh, we gave him some options for the next time he's got the drunk hiccups. And I'm, I'm curious if that happened, uh, before, during, or after the Florida state game on Sunday, that is it for today's episode of pot of gold. It's a long one, but, uh, certainly had a lot of things to discuss after the season opener. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week with a Toledo review and a Purdue preview. Until then, stick with ndinsider.com for all your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs. Mm-hmm.